0: This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. We have people in the back who be happy to give a Bible to you. Uh, we want to make sure that everyone has a copy of God's Word in front of them today, and so thank you for shooting those hands up. You can find the Gospel of Luke by just looking at the table of contents, turn to the book Luke, and then look for the big number 5. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 this morning. Normally as a church, we kind of pick one book of a Bible and go through it systematically, but for this Christmas season, we have been taking the opportunity to slow down and meditate together on the coming of Jesus. We've been in various parts of Scripture that tell us who this person is who has come to be with us. We are calling this sermon series Behold Our King. Throughout history, certain kings have had their reigns marked by historic initiatives. And so King Hammurabi was the sixth king of the first Babylonian dynasty. He's known for the Codex Hemerabai, which is one of the earliest and most complete written legal codes. You have King Ashuka, who is an Indian emperor, who implemented the first known policies of nonviolence, known as the Ashuka Principles. You have King John of England, who wrote the Magna Carta, which for the first time ever limited the power of kings and established the groundwork for constitutional law. What does the reign of King Jesus marked by. Jesus said he came to bring God's kingdom. And so what is the hallmark of this kingdom? Throughout his time on earth, Jesus certainly did many amazing things. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He even raised the dead. But before Jesus started his ministry, he was preceded by a prophet named John, who had been sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And so we can get to know a little bit about what Jesus was meant to be about, by looking at what John had been sent to do to prepare the way for him. In the Gospel of Luke earlier, we re- have read in chapter 1 that this is what John had been sent to do to get us ready for Jesus. He says, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's job was to set the stage for King Jesus by telling people they needed to be forgiven of their sins, and there was one coming who could do just that. You see, from the dawn of time, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that he would bring the forgiveness of sins by sending someone to reverse the curse of Satan, and then he clothed Adam and Eve in their shame. In Exodus chapter 34, when God declares his name, he makes the statement that he is the God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When Nehemiah led the Jewish people back to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls, he prayed to God and said, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God declares in Isaiah 43.5, I am he. Who blots out your transgressions? Even before there was a sinful world to forgive, God had actually purposed that He would forgive. Because we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that in eternity past, God purposed that Jesus would come and He would bring, as Ephesians 1 7 tells us, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Jesus came to be and to do many things, but friends, his reign is ultimately marked by one thing. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tells us, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the king who came to bring the forgiveness of our sins. Now most people know that already. Something like 80% of Americans can say, if you ask them why Jesus come? 80% of Americans, they might not believe it or not, but they can at least respond, "Jesus came to bring forgiveness of sins." That's a that's a common and familiar message. And yet, sometimes I think our knowledge of God's forgiveness can work like a vaccine, inoculating us against actually being affected by it. You know how vaccines work, right? They give you just enough of the virus or the disease that your immune system can be built up against it so that when you come in contact with the real thing, it doesn't actually affect you. I think for many of us, we can know just enough about God's forgiveness that we can build up a resistance to actually being affected by how God wants it to really play out in our lives. And so while this morning's sermon topic is going to be familiar, we're going to talk about God's forgiveness My prayer is that God would take what is familiar and make it freshly profound and beautiful. That our love and worship for Jesus would deepen as we, with fresh eyes of faith, behold our forgiving King. Let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 17 through 26. On one of those days as he, meaning Jesus, was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and set him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's bow our head and pray that God would meet us as we hear his word preached to us. I want to encourage you to have a time of prayer just real quick between you and God, asking him to speak to you through preaching his word this morning. And now if you'd be so kind, please pray for me also because I always need the Lord's help. Please pray that I be strengthened to speak in a way that would be helpful to you and glorified to the Lord. God, thank you that your spirit is with us to take your words and to make them come alive to our hearts today. I pray that through your spirit you would give us eyes to see what you want to show us you give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. And you would give us hearts to receive what you want to give to us. Lord, I pray that as your word is preached, that you would build us up, that you would glorify yourself, that you would send your enemies running as the kingdom of heaven touches earth in this holy moment as we come before your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. As we consider this morning our forgiving king, I want us to work our way through this text by looking at it in two headings. First, I want us to consider the unrealized need. And then second, the unparalleled authority. The unrealized need and the unparalleled authority. We begin with the unrealized need this scene opens with Jesus teaching, and we're not told where exactly he's teaching, but we are told that people are coming from all over to hear him teach. Verse 17 says they came from Judea, which was all the way in the south of Israel, I mean, excuse me, um, yeah, Judea was all the way in the south of Israel, to Galilee, which was all the way up in the north. And so really what's saying is that this is like the whole country is turning up to hear Jesus teach, because they'd never heard anyone speak like this man. So Jesus is in this house, and it certainly must have been a large house, because this certainly must have been a very large crowd. And the people are packed in so tightly that no one can even get through. Some friends arrive at this house, because they heard that at this house there was a man who knew how to make the lame walk. And they had a friend who was lame. But they can't bring him through the crowd, because people are so tightly pressed in. And so they begin to get a little creative. Back then, most homes had only one floor where everyone lived on. But because it was a fairly um, mild climate, roofs would almost usually be used as like an extra patio and sometimes even an extra sleeping area. And so it was very common to have uh, stairs on the side of your home that would lead up to your roof, which would act almost like a second floor. So these guys sidestep the crowd and take the stairs to the roof. Their idea is that we can get past everybody, kind of like us maybe driving on a shoulder. Not that anyone would ever do that. But we can kind of get around this traffic and find a way to drop right down in front of Jesus. And when we're reading the Bible, friends, I hope that, like, we slow down and try to put ourselves in these types of situations and think about, like, what was this possibly like? I mean, just imagine we're here, right? And all of a sudden, we're hearing footsteps on the roof and some voices, you know? And then we're starting to see pieces of our roof begin to fall and a hole begin to form. At that point, I'm probably asking Joe to call the police. Like, what on earth is going on? And then this person gets dropped down right in front of us. What happened to your church today? Well, how do I start? Right? Like, this isn't a wild thing that's going on. This is a desperate man who's doing a very desperate thing. His friends were desperate because this man had a desperate Need. It's always challenging to be paralyzed, but in ancient times, to be paralyzed was often a death sentence. There were no handicap accessible laws. There was no way to get yourself around. There's no wheelchairs, there's no motorized carts. If you're paralyzed, you're completely helpless. If you didn't have friends to care for you, you literally would just sit there and starve to death. There was no welfare system back in the ancient world. Fortunately for this man, he had some good friends who were able to bring him to Jesus. Side note, but we need good friends in our lives who are able to bring us to Jesus. The whole idea that we can do the Christian life, just me and God, is not how God has set us up to do the Christian life. No, we need to have friends in our lives who can help us when we need help to remind us of who Christ is and what he has done for us. This is why as a church we are so committed to not just gathering on a Sunday but being a community where we can form deep bonds with one another. This is why we have community groups, which are small groups where we meet together just over a meal and for prayer and to talk about life and to pray for one another because we need to have structures in place where we can grow friendships, where we can get to know Jesus in intentional ways. This is why we have men's and women's Bible studies. This is why we have times where we hang out just as guys and go on retreats. This is why we have an upcoming women's retreat in February. Like, we do all these things because relationships don't happen naturally in our busy, crazy, hectic world. They don't happen naturally, and they always take time. You can't like microwave relationships. You can't just show up and all of a sudden have good friends. No, it takes time and intentionality. Good relationships are not microwave meals. They are slow-cooked dinners. It takes some time to simmer in that crock pot and to allow the juices to soak into your hearts. But, friends, we need good friends in our lives. We need good friends in our lives. So, I just want to appeal to you if you're not yet plugged into the community of this church, to get more plugged in. If you're watching online, I'm grateful that you'd be doing that. That's not going to be enough for you. You need to get plugged into an embodied experience of having Christians in your life who know you and are known by you and through which you can walk out the Christian life together. So I'd encourage you, if you're not part of a community group, be part of one. Sign up. Go on the website. Get on the app. Get connected. If you're not part of a Bible study, get connected to one. God wants you to experience him by having friends in your life who can help you come to but as we get back to our text, this man, he's brought before Jesus in his desperate need. And Jesus, I think, gives him actually a fairly surprising answer. This man's lowered down on a mat because he needs to be healed of his paralysis. Like, that's why he came. But what does Jesus say in verse 20? It says, seeing their faith, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, we aren't told what that man said at that point. But I have to wonder if he was like, hey, that's great. How nice. Forgiveness of sins. Do you see that I'm lying here on a mat? You know, like, Jesus, I heard that you were a great teacher, but maybe you aren't the brightest bulb in the box. Like, let me just lay out before you what the real problem is. I have a physical condition, and so forgiveness, that's great. We can get to that, but I need to walk. It seems like this man's greatest need is not being met. But actually, this man's greatest need is being defined by the Savior who knows how to care for him even more than this man knew how to care for himself. This man did need healing. And Jesus would go on to give him a physical healing because God does care about our physical bodies. But as important as this man's physical condition was, his spiritual condition was even more so. You see, from Jesus' perspective, the greatest need this man had and the greatest need that we have is to be forgiven of our sins. If Jesus had only healed this man, that would have been great. But, like, then what? You know, he goes on to live maybe another 10 years, 20 years. Maybe he's a really young person. He goes on to live another 80 years. That's fantastic. But here's one thing that every single person that Jesus healed has in common. He healed them from all kinds of different things. Here's the one thing they all have in common. None of them are still living. And so this man had a significant need in that moment, but he had a far more significant need, which is the need that transcended that moment, a need that did not end with this life, but stretched on into the next life. This man's healing was a significant need, but it was not as significant as his eternal need. His eternal need is this. It's the eternal need we all have. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. One day, every person will stand before God, and when that day comes, every other need we had on earth will pale in comparison to our need on that day. Every other need we have on earth will end on this earth. In that sense, every need you have, no matter how pressing it might be, it does have an expiration date on it. But the need that matters most is the need that stretches beyond this life and impacts us for eternity. When we stand before God on Judgment Day and all of our life is brought before him, none of us are standing there with a clean record. And so our greatest need on that day is that we're going to need some help. Now, this idea that we're going to stand before God on Judgment Day is certainly an idea that does not get talked much at all in our culture. Right? Our culture is the culture of planet fitness, right? Judgment-free zone. You know, we don't believe in God's judgment. In fact, most churches don't even want to talk about God's judgment because it's not that popular, it does not draw that big, a crowd. Or if they do talk about judgment, they love to do it by pointing their finger at other people and talking about how God's going to judge them. Very few people want to admit that we're going to stand before God and face His judgment ourselves one day. And yet, while judgment is not something that most people think applies to themselves, I think a way to actually get at this and understand this is that guilt is something that many people understand oh all too well. We might not connect with the idea of judgment, but we can experientially feel the experience of guilt. I recently read a fascinating article by a man who I don't believe is a Christian, but a professor named Wilfred McClay, he was picked up by the New York Times, it was entitled The Strange Persistence of Guilt. This, This is what Professor McClay writes. He says, those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox one whose shape and character we have so far largely eluded our understanding. It's the strange persistence of guilt. I use the word strange persistence to suggest that the modern drama of guilt has not followed the script that was written for it. Prophets such as Friedrich Nietzsche were confident that once the modern Western world finally threw off the metaphysical straitjacket that had confined the possibilities of all previous generations The moral reflexes that accompany that framework would disappear along with them. With God dead, all would indeed be permitted. Chief among the outmoded reflexes would be the experience of guilt, an obvious vestige of irrational fear promulgated by oppressive, life-denying institutions erected in the name and image of a punitive deity. But guilt has not gone away. Here's what Dr. McClay McClay is saying. When people moved on from believing in God, guilt was supposed to go away. Guilt comes from knowing that you are guilty before someone. Feeling guilty implies that there is a God to whom we are guilty. And so you'd expect in an increasingly secular society like North America, where less and less people believe in a God of judgment, you'd expect there to be less and less feelings of guilt. But that is not actually the case. There is this strange persistence of guilt in that article professor mcclay goes on to note how guilt is often like a chameleon it it hides itself it's not visibly seen but it shows up in all kinds of different ways and so addictions can be an expression of guilt as you try to take your mind off all the regrets that you have anger can be an expression of guilt because if you're angry at someone else that gives you a break from feeling bad about yourself some try to work their guilts away. Some try to be busy enough with life just to not have to think about their guilts at any time. Some try to buy enough stuff to keep their guilts at bay. Others try to do as many good things as they can to make up for the bad things that we've done. Sigmund Freud actually argued that guilt is the primary motivator for almost all human actions. And while there's not much that I would agree with Sigmund Freud about, if you know he is, I do agree... The guilt can often be at the root of a lot of human behavior because Scripture actually bears that to be true. Romans chapter 1 tells us that every single person has, at least at a subconscious level, an understanding that we have a creator to whom we are accountable. And therefore, even though not everyone acknowledges this creator, there is written in our hearts a sense of our guilt before him and that guilt is an eternal problem, how can we stand before God as a guilty person? But it's not only an eternal problem, it's also a present problem as well. Guilt's not something we just have to deal with in the future when we stand before God. No, guilt can often rob us of the life that God wants us to have right now in this moment. To illustrate this, I think of how guilt played out in that famous classic philosophical treatise, The Lion King. In case you haven't seen that movie, I'm about to give a spoiler, but it's been like 30 years at this point, which is wild to think, but it's 30 years since that came out. So no apologies. It's on you. If you don't know the story of Lion King already. But you remember in that movie, there's that moment where Simba's in the gully and the stampede comes. And in one of the saddest moments of my childhood, his dad dies trying to save him. And then how does Simba feel after that moment? He feels guilty. And so what does he do? Uncle Scar says, run, Simba, and he runs, and he goes, and he hides. He tries to just forget about it, and things seem to be going somewhat okay. He doesn't go off and do any wild or self-destructive things. He's just eating some grubs and singing Hakuna Tana, right? Like he's having a good old time, and yet he was not embracing his true identity, and he was not living for his true purpose. His guilt was robbing him, of what should have been his life. How often we can be robbed of the peace and joy and purpose that God has for us because of the guilt that we allow to live inside of us. This man came into this building thinking his need was to be healed, but his far greater need was to have his guilt dealt with. His greater need in that sense was forgiveness. And fortunately for him, you come to the right person. Jesus is the forgiving king. And he can be so because of his unparalleled authority. As we've looked at the unrealized need, let's consider now the unparalleled authority. As soon as Jesus granted this man the forgiveness of his sins, the religious leaders who are present in the crowd, their heresy meters start going off. They, they say in verse 21, who is this who speaks blasphemies? That means to speak falsely about God. And they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, here's what we need to understand. These guys are right. Only God can forgive sin because all sin is first and foremost against him. If someone comes up here and punches me in the face, which please do not do because that would hurt. Um, But if someone comes up here and punches me in the face, I'm bleeding out all over myself. And they go and sit back down in their seat over there. And someone out who's sitting over here says, I forgive you. It's like, you know, I'm sitting up here with blood pouring down my face. And it's like, hey, I'm grateful you forgave them. But my nose is broken. They didn't do anything to you. So what do you, right you have to forgive them, right? Like it makes no sense. The only person who can forgive them is the person that they actually did harm against. In the same way, when we sin, no matter what we do or who we do it against, our actions are ultimately always against God. Because Jesus said God's first and great commandment is that we would love him, Matthew chapter 22, verse 38. And he said that loving God means following his commands, John chapter 14, verse 15. And so when I fail to do what God says is right, whether that be through thought or desire or action, whether that only affects me or whether it has an effect on someone else, when I fail to do what God says is right, it is ultimately against him. I think John Stott says it so well when he says sin is not a regrettable lapse from conventional standards. Its essence is hostility to God, issuing an active rebellion against him. Friends, all sin is ultimately an assault on God. It is failing to love him and obey him. And so even when our sin hurt someone else, without diminishing that hurt to them in any way, we need to see that ultimately is isn't actually just about them. What we've done is not just hurt them. We are first and foremost just rendered an assault on God himself. And so these religious leaders were right in their observation. Only God does have the authority to forgive sin. Which is why, friends, like in our efforts to work off our guilt, they always fall short because remember, we're trying to work off our guilt, we're trying to get forgiveness from things that don't have the authority to actually forgive us. So you can work a million hours a week and you're not going to feel any better because your job doesn't have authority to forgive you. You can buy all the stuff you want in the world. You won't actually feel better because it doesn't have authority to forgive you. You can give yourself to whatever addiction is your fancy and just go till your mind is numb, but you'll never actually feel better because no amount of thing ever give you that the, has authority to forgive you. This is why even the self-help therapy of I need to learn to forgive myself will not work because you don't have the authority to forgive you. God is the most aggrieved party when we sin, and so he is the only one who ultimately has the authority to forgive us of our sin. And so these religious leaders were right when they said that only God can forgive sin. What they are missing is that Jesus is God. And yet Jesus, in an act of compassion, he doesn't let this moment go by. He could have just kept interacting with this man, but he had his heart broken even for these religious rulers. And so he perceives not what they're saying out loud. Notice, he perceives what they're saying in their hearts. So he shows that he's the God who knows all by knowing what's going on inside them. And then in a tremendous act of love, he's like, I'm actually going to change how you are and what you think about me. And so watch what he does. He says in verse 24, that you may know. Who's he talking to? The religious leaders. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. These people went from being skeptics To worshipers, because that's what happens when you see someone who came in lying on a mat, rise up, put that mat on his shoulder, and walk out through the authority of a person who says, You are healed. Through this display of power, Jesus is absolutely showing that he is God, and therefore he has the unparalleled authority to forgive sin. But his authority to forgive sin cannot come in a way that is inconsistent with his character. I think one of the reasons sometimes that we can take God's forgiveness for granted is because we don't actually understand the gravity of our sin before God. We we don't understand how our sin affects God. Leviticus chapter 20 gives us just a little picture of how God views our sin. He says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. That word detest is used in the sense of detesting something to the point of sickness. What we're meant to see is that our sin is so repulsive to God's holy character that it's like the feeling of making him sick. And therefore, he must, he must judge it. He can't just cover over it. If we hear that someone does a horrific wrong, and then that wrong was covered over, sometimes the cover-up is even worse than the original action. We hear about a cover-up, and there can be a sense of outrage to the point that we can even feel sick in our stomachs. We are people who want to see justice done. Friends, that's because we are people who have been made in the image of God who is a God of justice. He will not just cover things up. He cannot and he will not turn a blind eye to sin. And so this is what God says about sin. He says in Ezekiel chapter seven, verse eight, now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you, suspend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I'll punish you for all your abominations or in the words of isaiah behold the day of the lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it for the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth shall be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And should we think, well, that's just the Old Testament, as if there is a God who changes. You know who spoke the most about God's judgment? Was the one who came, God incarnate, Jesus. Read the Gospels. Jesus talks about God's judgment all the time. I'll just give you one example, John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Have you ever been so angry at someone before that it's like you're seeing red? That emotion of anger just overwhelms you. Friends, that's just sinful people towards sinful people. Can you imagine how much greater must be the wrath of the holy God who has never sinned, whose scripture says his eyes are too pure to even look on sin? Friends, the greatest dilemma in human history is how can God be the righteous and just God who rightly feels and pours out his wrath upon the atrocity of sin, and at the same time keep his promise to be the Savior who forgives sinners. Friends, we will never be in awe of God. We will never have our souls stirred with wonder and holy reverence if we don't understand this dilemma. If we think the forgiveness of our sins comes cheap and easy, then we'll treat it like something that is cheap and easy. I heard an interview recently from a pastor who had been convicted of fraud and sentenced to seven years in prison. The person interviewing him said, how could you preach week after week about Jesus and be stealing from people at the same time? He said, it wasn't that I didn't believe in Jesus. It wasn't even that I didn't love Jesus. He goes, I had stopped fearing God. There was no all. There was no reverence. He believed in forgiveness, but he treated it cheaply. Forgiveness was his insurance policy that he could have that then allowed him to continue to live however he wanted. But that mindset fails to appreciate friends. Friends the costly thing that God's forgiveness is. It was easy on the one hand for Jesus to say these words, your sins are forgiven. But do not think for a moment that it was easy for him to make this forgiveness come to pass. See, Jesus could tell this man that he was forgiven not just because he was God, and so he had authority to do so, but also because he was gonna bear the judgment of God in our place. What did Jesus pray the night before he died. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is the cup that Jesus so desperately wanted removed? It was the cup of God's wrath that Isaiah chapter 51 says has been stored up since the first sin was committed and just keeps getting added to over and over again as our sins compound. It's a cup filled with God's holy hatred for mankind's detestable rebellion against him. And Jesus shuddered as he considered taking this cup. Now, now, this is Jesus. This is someone who didn't scare easily. This is the one who had come face to face with Satan in the desert, and there's not like there's even a struggle. He just beats his temptations one after another. This is the one who had stared down angry mobs wanting to kill him. He's like, it's not my time. He just walks right through them. You get no sense that he's worried whatsoever. This is the one who, as there's a life-threatening storm going on, he's sleeping in the boat. And then when it's time, he's like, yeah, you know what, be quiet. The storm just stops. Jesus didn't scare easily. But as he considered that cup, he knew what was coming in that cup. He is God, and so he knew the holy judgment that that cup contained. And as he considered that cup, he became so agonized that Luke will go on to tell us, he began to sweat drops of blood. James Denny, I think, says it well when he says, never man feared death like this man. Jesus' fear was not the fear of unbelief, but the fear of knowing exactly what lay in store for him. And yet, he still went to the cross and he still took the cup and he drank it and the sun did go out as the prophets were told that it would because the horror of what was happening on the cross was too great for it to continue to shine and yet still Jesus drank that cup and the whole earth did shake as creation itself shuddered at the wrath of God that was being poured out on Christ. And yet still, Jesus drank the cup. He drank it and drank it until all of God's judgment for the wrongs of each and every person who would believe in Him, all of God's judgment for my wrongs. Oh, friends, I hope you can personalize this. All of God's judgment for your wrongs. All that would take us in eternity to experience and how. Jesus drank that cup of staggering until every last drop was gone. And he bowed his head and said with his on a breath it is finished and it was finished the cup was finished the cup had been emptied God's wrath had been fully poured out on Jesus it was finished sins paid for forgiveness won Friends, this is why Jesus came. This is what Christmas is all about. Billions of babies have been born. We celebrate the birth of this baby. Because he will become a man who would die for our sins on the cross. The only reason it's a Merry Christmas. For sinners like you and me is because we have a forgiving. And so as we come to a close, I just wonder what ways do you need to be reminded of God's forgiveness today? Maybe there is guilt you are holding on to. And you've been trying to forgive yourself. Friends, today. I believe God wants to ask you to stop trying to do for yourself that only He can do for you. Bring your guilt to the Lord. and Trust it to His nail scarred hands. Believe in the forgiveness that He has won. Or maybe there is a sin that you're carrying that you've never confessed to a living soul. Come clean today and trust in God's promise of forgiveness. The idea that we can keep just our sin between us and God robs us of the ability to actually experience the forgiveness of God. Because James chapter 5, verse 16 says, that confess your sins one to another so that you might be healed. I see this so often. People are denying the healing of forgiveness that God wants for them because they're living in the persistent doubt that God can actually forgive them. And so they are unwilling to share openly about their sin with others. If I'm unwilling to confess my sin to a brother or sister in Christ, that's not openly trusting in the God who forgives sin. So friends, my encouragement to you is to come clean today. Find a godly brother or godly sister. Tell them what you've been carrying. Allow them to remind you of the forgiveness of Christ. Maybe you're in a position where you've actually gotten very comfortable in your sin and are easily taking grace for granted. I pray today as we went slowly through what our forgiveness cost Christ, I pray that that would rake your heart. It would ask you to say the question that Paul says in Romans chapter 6, how can I continue to live in sin when Jesus has died for? It? Or maybe you're here and there are significant hurts you are carrying. Pains and sorrows from things that people have done against you. And it can be hard to connect to a message of forgiveness because like this paralyzed man, there seem to be such bigger needs that you have. And yet, friends, it's understanding the love of Jesus' forgiveness of us. That's the only thing that is powerful enough to heal our hurting hearts. Because until we see all that God has done to forgive us of our sins and what incredible love that took, we'll never fully heal from the ways that people can sin against us. Maybe you're here and you're struggling with fear in various ways. Oh, may the forgiveness of Christ remind you that the God who has taken care of your greatest need won't leave you now. And so you can entrust him with that, whatever it is. Maybe you're here today and you feel very discouraged by something or even in a place of depression. I pray today that the forgiveness of Christ would be like a warm blanket wrapping you in the love of God and sharing your soul. Maybe you're here today and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I pray today would be the day that you do that. Listen, and whatever we got going on, our greatest need is the same as this paralyzed man's greatest need. We need the forgiveness of our sins. And then we, when we by faith believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, what do we need? We need to then regularly meditate on and savor and come to appreciate more and more the forgiveness that he has been given to us. Because Jesus says, he who loves much is he who knows has been forgiven much. And so the fires of great love for God are stoked upon daily meditation on the great forgiveness of God. And friends, this is why his word is so helpful in our lives. Because it cuts us to the heart and opens us up so that we can see both the sinfulness of our sin and then again and again the sweetness of our Savior. Man, just the other day I was in Numbers chapter 21, which is all about how the people are complaining about to God because God's not doing things in their timing and their way. And my heart was just freshly cut by my own sin and how often I can do that. How often I can want God to do his work on my timetable and in my way. And my impatience is ultimately an assault on him and his sovereignty. And I'm sitting there in my living room and my heart is being cut afresh by the sinfulness of my sin. And then I'm being so sweetly reminded of the greatness of my Savior who died for that. Jesus died for impatient people like me so that I could be forgiven and that I could be empowered to trust him more and be more patient. Friends, God's word is such a gift because it is, as Hebrew says it is, it's a dual-edged sword that cuts us. Bone and marrow, it cuts us, but it doesn't cut us to hurt us. It cuts us to heal us. And so my encouragement to you, friends, is to Take up this word daily and read it, not just for information, but for revelation. Get to know God more through this, not just things about him. No, get to know him, who he actually is, and how you do that is by first seeing yourself and your great need for him. If you're reading this and thinking about how this applies to someone else, read it a little bit longer. God's going to show you and expose you on these pages, and then he's going to show you Christ and magnify him. The fires of love for God are stoked when we take the wood of his word and place them on our hearts as we see the sinfulness of our sin and the sweetness of our Savior. And it's a beautiful gospel concoction that blows up in our face. Great love for God. And so my encouragement to all of us, friends, is that our greatest need is to know that we have a great need for the forgiveness of God of our sins and we have a great savior who came to forgive us of our sins because of what Jesus was born to do for those who trust in him we have every reason to celebrate his birth and say Merry Christmas Christ Church may we behold our forgiving king That's bow our heads in the word